Hello and welcome to Truth Talks, brought to you by South African author, theologian and church leader, Dr. Christopher Pepler. Hello, it's me again. After Sunday the other day, just after the service, a lady walked up to me and asked me, had I seen the series playing on the History Channel called Bible Secrets Revealed? The way she was talking, I thought it was a new series, so I went and had a look. But actually, the series that was produced, I think it was nine, about three or four years ago, and it's being rerun now. But I had a look at the first episode, watched it through to its conclusion. I found it sickening. You, you know, I don't object to honest inquiry into the difficulties that some people do have with the content and the composition of the scriptures. But I've got little tolerance for biased and selective propaganda, and I'm afraid that's what this series is. Blatant, anti-evangelical Christian propaganda. Now, of course, there's nothing new about this sort of attack on the veracity of the scripture. The Bible is, after all, the sacred text of the Christian faith. And so for hundreds and hundreds of years, detractors and adversaries have been trying their level best to discredit its trustworthiness. But unfortunately, it's not only atheists and secular agnostics and people like that who denigrate the Bible. It's also well-meaning Christians. Mm. Let me give you some obvious examples. Many years ago, a man called Bishop Spong, I think Bishop Spong is still alive, he wrote a number of books trying to strip the miraculous and the mysterious out of the scriptures. Because he says in the foreword to his, his main work that he was seeking to protect the Bible from scientific scorn. He said, gosh, and this I can get people to believe that all the miraculous stuff and the and mysterious stuff in the scripture is really just irrelevant then and maybe it can survive in the 20th and 21st centuries. Very misguided. More recently, a man called Brian McLaren presented an idea that the Bible actually is a sort of cultural library more than it is a repository of truth. I wrote a, a review on his, his book, A New Kind of Christianity. And then just this month, well, maybe towards the end of last month, the well-known Andy Stanley made the statement which has infuriated many that it was time for Christians to unhitch themselves from the Old Testament, you know, the major part of the sacred scriptures. Now, these aren't the first and they won't be the last folk coming from within the Christian camp who, for whatever reason, are presenting a threat to the veracity of the scriptures itself. But you know, I think there's an even more subtle threat. And it presents itself as an attempt to guard the integrity of the Bible. And it's presented by very Bible-believing folk. There are two words that flag this friendly fire. Literal and inerrant. Now, please keep on listening because... I think any conservative evangelical listener is probably going to be having a small apoplectic fit right now because those are two almost sacred words. So let me explain exactly what I mean. 
You see, in the theological world particularly, words are defined differently. So what I mean by inerrant is probably not what a whole bunch of other people mean by inerrant. And literal certainly isn't what Bible dictionaries sometimes give it as, or English dictionaries. So let me start with literal, literalism. Now, most Bible-honoring Christians, and I include myself among that band, believe that the Bible should be understood literally. But you see, by that I mean that we should understand any biblical text within its biblical, literary, historical, and cultural context. To understand something literally, in this sense, includes the possibility for figurative language, parables, types, allegory, and so on. So, a good starting question is, what did the original readers understand by this? And then start trying to understand the literal meaning from that point. However, there are many, most of whom fly under the heading of dispensationalists, but there are others, who contend that we need to understand every text only in its plain and here's the word, superficial sense. And that's how they understand the word literal interpretation. I'll give you one for instance. Revelation 20 verses 1 to 6 describes some form of what has been known as millennium, thousand year reign of Christ, a millennium. So according to literalistic interpreters, there just must be a coming 1,000-year physical reign of Christ on earth before the end of all things comes. Why? Because surely that's the plain meaning of those six verses. But for goodness sakes, the whole of the book of Revelation is written in apocalyptic style and structure. And it's intended to present truth through powerful symbols and word pictures. So, surely, to understand it literally does not mean to ignore its literary context. The other word is inerrancy, a hot potato word in the evangelical Christian world right now. Now, it's a word that means different things to different folks, as I mentioned before. I do not believe that the Bible is free of elements that are inconsistent historically ambiguous or scientifically untenable. They just are. To any intelligent inquiry of scripture, intelligent reader, you can't can't but notice the inconsistencies, the anomalies that you have to wrestle with. But this does not mean that parts of the Bible are not fully inspired and or that they are not fully trustworthy. You see, the Holy Spirit supervised the writing, editing, collating, and preservation of all of the scriptures. The Bible is God-ordained and a God-ordered human-divine collaboration, and it's fully trustworthy. So, in this sense, in the sense of absolute trustworthiness, then I hold that the Bible is inerrant. And by this I mean that God did not make a mistake involving humans, albeit inconsistent humans, from time to time, in the process of producing scripture. He did not make a mistake in entering into 
an unequal partnership where he allowed men to express something of their own fallibility and their own foibles in the actual pages of scripture. That was not a mistake on God's part. However, you see many reformed and fundamentalist scholars, I think, conflate, sort of wrap together their understanding of inerrancy with their idea of literal interpretation. And when they do that, I think they strip it subtly of its human influence. And then the Bible really, although they will argue vehemently against what I'm saying now, the, the, the Bible really comes down to some form of divinely dictated text. And, and that's not what it is. So, let me state now why I believe that this, let's call it, literalist inerrancy approach to the Bible, that I've, as I've described it, is a threat to the acceptance of the Scriptures as the inspired and trustworthy written Word of God. I want to give you three reasons. Firstly, I think it puts Bible believers on the defensive, always having to at least attempt to explain away the very obvious anomalies within the Scripture. Always having to be on the defense when people say, yes, but what about this? Look, there's three angels here and only one angel mentioned here, and how do you account for that? And we've got to scratch around trying to find some semi-coherent way of explaining them. Often not too successfully, I must tell you. Second reason. It's like a, a proverbial sword of Damocles hanging over our heads in that if we fail to explain away the problems that we encounter in the sacred text, then the inevitable conclusion of that is a rejection of the inspiration of the scripture itself. You know, if God dictated it all, word for word, or as they put it, impelled and caused the writers to write exactly what he wanted written, exactly what he wanted written, word for word, and then we find stuff which is obviously at odds with other stuff in the scripture, then the final conclusion honestly has to be, well, hang on, at least part of this can't be the inspired word of God. Third reason, and maybe the most subtle reason of all, it detracts from the intended purpose of the Bible, and we fail to embrace the scripture in its wonderful form and in terms of its wonderful purpose. Now, this last point I need to explain a little bit more. You see, the Bible is not a theological dictionary. You know, you can't go and say, let me look up millennium, let me see, uh, uh, L-M-M, O-M-M-M-E-E, -E. Uh, there it is, there's the entry for millennium, it just isn't. And it's not an exhaustive description of reality in its totality, it's truth. But it's not a it's, it's not an expose of all factual data. It doesn't contain scientific stuff, for instance, mathematical equations and business science and all sorts of stuff. It's not in there. Neither is it a magical source book. We can't go and concoct things by quoting formulas out of it. You know, bubble, bubble, toil and trouble. And nor is it a coded prediction of the future. Like a giant sort of mystic clock leading us into the future. It's none, none of these things. Rather, 
It's the inspired, God-breathed record of God's dealing with humanity. And it's also a reliable, sometimes painfully honest record of human response to God's dealing. You know, it might come as a shock to some folk, but the scripture has got many stories and statements which are there because they need to be there. God wants them there. But they indicate not a positive model, but a negative one. It shows us people responding the way they shouldn't respond. Oh, the fall. Adam and Eve is just one example of that. You see, but most of all, the Bible is the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's the background to his life here on earth. And it's the record of his works and words. We encounter Jesus in and through the Bible, through the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts and minds. And we find in the Bible the way of relating to him. We find the path of life and the way to be his disciples. However, please, let me note something that I've noted as a caution many times. No matter how inspired we regard the scripture, and it is inspired and it is trustworthy, it is Jesus, not the Bible, that is the source of truth. I'll say that again. Jesus, not the Bible, is the source of truth. Now, when we view the Bible as anything less than it's actually intended to be, its intended purpose, then I believe that we set it up for attack. And we dismantle it rather than embrace and accept it for what it is. And I do use the words less than its intended meaning. I use that word intentionally because I contend that attempts to defend literalistic inerrancy, as I've spelt it out, actually reduces the veracity of the Bible, does not defend it. I know it's a noble intent to defend the scripture, but it's a defense which actually constitutes a subtle attack on that which they are professing to defend. So, fellow believer, please, accept the Bible for what it is. It's fully trustworthy document, indispensable to faith and life. And, and let its detractors flounder, you know. Let us rather focus on Jesus, the author and the subject of the inspired scripture, and continue to find direction, comfort and meaning in the pages of sacred text. And let things like Bible secrets revealed be revealed for what they are. Unreliable, untrustworthy and essentially untrue. Okay, as usual, my daughter Corinne joins us for some questions that she hopes I have some answers to. Hello again. Hi there. I used the word again specifically <laughs> because okay. of the name of the post we're going to talk about today, which is the Bible under attack again. Again. Okay. When was it first under attack? Is it not constantly under attack? What makes this so special? Uh, all right. Yes, it is. So, for thousands of years, critics and people who want to try and disprove the Christian faith, etc., attack the Bible mm. because it's the source of our information. Mm. 
Um, and so if they can discredit the Bible, then it's a huge, big blow against Christianity and so on. Yeah. So it's been going on for, for forever. And every year there's a new batch. But they tend to sort of come in waves. They, they tend to encourage each other, you know. Mm. So somebody will launch something. The late, this latest one that I mentioned, which is Bible Secrets Revealed on the History Channel, actually it was produced in uh, 2014 or 15, I think. So mm. it's not really new. Yeah. It just came to my attention recently. Okay. But if I went onto YouTube, I'd find there's always something there that somebody's having a go about something else. Okay. But it's a topic which recurs. That's really why I put there again. You know, okay. the Bible under attack, again. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you know, that's the sort of sense of it. Okay. Cool. Um, now, a, a lot of what you, you talk about is people misinterpreting the Bible and saying it's, it doesn't um, make sense and it contradicts itself and that sort of thing. And you use the word literally literally to describe how we should understand the Bible. Yes. And then you say that literally includes symbolism, figurative language, parables, and that sort of thing. And for me, that's not what literally feels like it includes. To me, literally is absolutely literal. Okay. You know, interesting. If you go into one of the online English dictionaries, mm. you, you see it. most of them certainly the big ones, uh, give two definitions of the word literal. Yeah. The, the one is the one you're referring to, literal exactly as it is. Yeah. But then they give a second one, and the second one is literal interpretation is that which seeks to answer the question, what is the intended original meaning of this passage? Huh. So, and this is one of the problems we have with with Christianese and with theological speak and all that, a lot of words mean different things to different folk. Mm. And they get redefined over time. Mm. And literally is one of them. See, maybe a better word would have been literalistic, but then I thought, although I used that once, I think that's a bit of a mouthful. Mm. So I just stuck with literal. But it, but there's a sort of a subtle difference between literal and literalistic, but it, it just points out this difference I'm making. But both those meanings are acceptable. So on the second part says, literal means that which the scripture says within its context and culture and so on. Now, how do you know which one, you know, if you're reading about symbolism or figurative, for example, I thought Job was a guy. I didn't realize it was a, a play or a... Well, yes, uh, but the answer is both and. It's not either or. So, yes, Job, I believe, lived. There was a Job. Okay. And Job went through a terrible time. Okay, so it doesn't make any difference that it's written as and a play. And his life was used in order to present to us how to handle these things. Yeah. Uh, uh, but the person who put it together under inspiration of the Holy Spirit phrased it as a play. Yeah. You have the characters in the play, etc. That doesn't mean that li that Job did not exist. Mm. Okay. But it does mean that unless we understand the literary format of it, we're going to misunderstand it. 
But we're going to say, we're going to say, oh my goodness, we've, science has got it wrong all these years. You know, there actually is a storehouse up there past the sun where all the uh, lightning bolts are kept. Well, and then you know, God flings them at the earth for target practice every now and then. doesn't say that in Job. Sure it does. does it? So at the storehouses where the lightning is kept and where the rain comes from and the snow and all that sort of stuff. Gosh, I've got to read that book again. <laughs> yeah, it talks about, you know, the four pillars of the earth. Yes. Because it's written in a format which was current at the time it was written and in a play format which um, which has a, is a particular genre mm. and a particular style. Mm. It doesn't mean that Job did not actually exist. I believe he did. It just means we need to understand the context and the style and the format of it in order to understand it properly. How? How do we know which it is? Well, you know, there are rules, um, but if I boil it all down, it's pretty darn common sense for most of the time. Mm. Uh, Let me give you an obvious example. What are the Psalms? The Psalms are songs. Mm. Pretty easy to understand that. Some Mm. of them are actually marked, Mm. song of this, Mm. written for the music director in the key of A flat almost doesn't mm. quite say that but I'm getting <laughs> uses some Hebrew words <laughs> so we understand that these are this is poetry yeah and in fact a lot of it is poetry to music yeah so clearly as we un, as we read a psalm we're not going to read it like a history lesson are we no right so now if you go to a book like Samuel and Kings mm. and Judges mm. what are those clearly they are histories. Mm. They're telling us what happened, to whom, when. But to me, like, just to reuse that example, Job didn't didn't come across as a play. Well, it does because you've you've uh, again, you've got all these characters that appear, mm. and they play very stylized roles, okay. and the actual the way that they actually phrase their questions and the answers, etc., give you. The clues to that. Okay. Also, folk have done the work for us. They have researched the styles of ancient, the ancient people, and how they would actually do these things. So mm. We know that as well. But the big clue is the way God responds in in Job. Mm. You know, wait a minute. You could ask that question I've just posed earlier. You know, is God telling us that? that this earth actually is flat mm. the flat earth the guys are actually correct mm. and it's like a disc set up on four pillars and mm. so on yeah well okay. clearly it's a stylistic you know so it's it's basically common sense frankly and I think Thanks. that literalistic <laughs> literalistic interpretation most times runs contrary to common sense okay let me use a a different example because you cited from Revelation which I know you know it inside outside backwards forwards but a lot of people still find it confusing let me go to the whole other end of the Bible which we teach our small children yes. uh, about the fruit that Eve took was okay. there a fruit was there a tree is there a sword how much of that is symbolism how much of that is, is literal did it take seven days how are we supposed to take that Genesis? Okay, so now you asked a whole bunch of questions all in one, and mm. we're not going to have time to cover them, but let me give you the kernel of the yeah. answer. The, 
again, here you have a picture of um, an agrarian society. There's no cities, there's no towns, there's no villages. There's this beautiful garden and you and two people. Yeah. And God has made animals and there's animals there and all these things are, are happening. Mm. In, In that garden, yeah. there are trees. Yeah. So we know that there was a... Uh, Adam existed, Eve existed, the trees existed. They're not figures of speech. And Adam was made from clay, and it was all done in seven days. Hang on, hang on. Let me, you're jumping ahead of the... Okay, sorry. Of where I'm going. Okay. So, so you've got these two actual trees. Yeah. But the trees also served, two of them were specified to serve as a foundational issue. And the issue was, you must trust me and obey me, Adam, says God. Yeah. If you do, then you will have life. Yeah. My presence, my energy, my knowledge, my wisdom, all of that is symbolized by that tree. Mm. So the fruit of that tree symbolizes obedience to me and my life. Mm. Now, that tree over there, you see that one there? If you if you reach out your hand and take from the fruit of that tree, you are saying to me, I don't want to depend on you anymore. I want the knowledge of all things myself. I want to be as God. Mm. And therefore, you will not have access to the first one. Mm. So two real trees, which couldn't be more appropriate symbols in an agrarian society. Yeah. So when, when Adam and Eve, even in this case, reaches out her hand and takes from the tree of the knowledge of all things she's saying, I don't want to depend upon you anymore or trust you or obey you. I've just decided to listen to the devil. But was there a tree? Yes, there was a tree, I believe. But the tree stood for something. It wasn't just... There's no mystical quality that it had these fruit like it had, that when you took a bite, um, life suddenly went into you. Mm. You know, no. again, that's that's simplistic. That's uh, literalism. Mm. But but to, we have to believe that there was a tree because it specifies that there was a tree. Just like when there was a flood, it says there was a flood, and that an ark was actually built. But we know that in the New Testament. That ark and that flood were taken as powerful messages mm. for God's provision and judgment and even for the nature of the church later on mm. and so on. Were there six days of creation followed by one day of resting is another question which people are fighting over. I mean, they create these religious wars almost mm. nowadays in, in the evangelical church. Well, again, the issue is, it talks about day. It says there was evening and there was morning the first day. Mm. There was evening and there was morning the second day. So the, the, the hot debate is, does a day mean a literal 24-hour period, which is followed immediately by another 24-hour period? Mm. It doesn't actually state that. So we have room to be able to say that a whole bunch of, of possibilities are, are present. For mm. There could have been creation within a 24-hour period with a 5 million year gap between mm. them. It's possible. Mm. It, 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 I'm not saying it's right or wrong. Mm. I'm saying there's the possibility. The word day is also used figuratively in, in other parts of Scripture. The words like the day of the Lord will come and so mm. on. 
which doesn't mean a 24-hour period. So we can understand how to un- interpret that differently. Hmm. But it doesn't mean that God did not actually create from nothing. I always think of that verse about to, to God uh, a thousand years can be a day and a c- day can be a thousand years. Yes, indeed. In fact, that's one of the verses that's often used in, the, in that argument. It's, it's quite a big argument. Yeah. It's a big discussion. And people have written entire books full of, on it. So, so to go back to the tree, was it a decision that Eve made? Was that okay, the action? An, an actual tree? Yeah. Two actual trees? Yeah. Those two actual trees stood as powerful symbols, the one for obedience and trust, the yeah. other one for life. Yeah. By taking from the one, Adam and Eve are indicating their obedience and trust. Yeah. By taking from the other, they're saying we don't. So there was a fruit they took? Sure. Oh, okay. Sure there was, but there, but, but there was no essence in that fruit which, which gave them life. It wasn't a poison apple. It wasn't a poisoned apple. Okay. You know, um, you got me. Yeah. And what we do know is we know that Satan was present in the garden. Mm. We know that he utilized a creature yeah. called the serpent mm. to actually communicate with Eve. Mm. Just as later on God used a donkey to communicate with Balaam. Mm. So we... we the scriptures state that and, and, and so we take it as truth we say that's true however what this this creature looked like nobody knows it might have walked on two legs it might have been beautiful it might have been shining with light it might have looked like a dragon who knows mm. uh, a siren <coughs> it, it just doesn't tell us yeah. it just does tell us that this, it, it was a serpent mm. but what that serpent looked like no clue and quite frankly totally irrelevant <laughs> yeah because okay. the truth of that passage comes through quite clearly yeah. Eve listened to the voice of the devil yeah. one way or another yeah. obeyed it and disobeyed God and reaped the consequences That's, that helps me thanks I've, I've often wondered about that because you know people are very um, quick to go oh yeah right there's a tree there's an apple that she bits an apple and suddenly all this happens, you know, the, the muck is in the scorners of the world. Yeah, you know, again, this is something I find myself saying a huge number of times, but it's worth repeating. One of the biggest problems we have, I think, is we always go to an either-or solution to things. Yeah. Instead of saying, but why, why can we not embrace both? Yeah, why aren't there nuances? There was a real tree, mm. but a also that tree stood for a real truth. Mm. It's not a mystical quality of the fruit, it's what that fruit stood for, but it doesn't mean that there wasn't actually a fruit. Mm. And we embrace both. Okay, so to just get get on to the sort of broader topic of the Bible being under attack, and you know, I always like to end with something practical. Yes. In reality, for me, my non-Christian friends, the questions I get are things like yeah but it was written so long ago and by different people how do you know that when they translated it for the 10 millionth time you haven't lost everything that was ever there and if you take a verse then you can make you can believe anything you want to from it yeah 
And so without actually printing out the article you wrote and handing it to them and flouncing off, what is the sh- short answer? All right. We, we've touched on this in some detail in previous talks. Mm. So I'm going to again just give the, the quickest possible answer to mm. it um, because it's a huge subject. Yeah. This series that triggered this whole post of mine, uh, Bible Secrets Revealed, mm. Episode one is all about that. Mm. Now, how can we rely on this? Because you know it was edited here, and this document was lost there, and mm. Constantine came in and changed the whole Bible and all the rest of the stuff. Yeah. Now, all those statements are, are patent nonsense because they're they're not based on proper historical research hmm. and proper evidence. In reality, the Bible has more fragments, parchment pieces, bits of it chapters, books, etc., by thousands of times more than any other ancient document. I mean, it is astronomically more. You've got something like 33,000 odd or whatever the number is, references to the scriptures, and you've got like five or six or seven references to ancient Greek plays. Mm. You know, the, the, the great ones, stories of Hercules and all those people. But th- those um, fragments, they weren't the original parchments. No, but it's an, it's, it's an entire industry and an entire science where they, where they can compare one to another. Mm. They can see if anything's changed, what has changed, why has it changed, which can be regarded as reliable, which are bad copies, where the, the copyist, because they all hand copied, mm made an error and so on and so forth because there's such a lot of evidence mm, okay. it's not like they're working with these you know one or two little manuscripts yeah I mean it's a plethora of them there's just thousands yeah and then so, every now and then they, they have these finds like the Dead Sea Scrolls etc where they, they find most of the Old Testament intact and they say hello yeah now we can compare yep no, there's no no meaningful differences here so would the short answer be well Google the Dead Sea Scrolls. The the short answer is uh, the people who make these claims haven't done their own homework. Yeah. They're just spouting off half yeah. the time. Yeah. Okay. So the challenge is go and do your homework and find out for yourself. If you want to, there's books written about. There's a guy called Josh McDowell who wrote more evidence that deserves uh, more uh, evidence that deserves a verdict. I think it's mm. called. Mm. Uh, might have got that slightly wrong. Yeah, no, I think you've also... If Evidence that deserves a verdict, yeah. So it's all there where he lays out all this information. Mm. Then, of course, there are websites by the dozen mm. that cover all this. Mm. So it doesn't... It's, it's not hard to actually get this evidence on our own screens. Read the book of Job before you ask stupid questions to a very knowledgeable man. Uh, <laughs> Is that what but you're getting folk, at? Oh, I, you know, I don't want to be cynical, but I find that a lot of folk who raise those objections haven't read the Bible. Yeah. Yeah. They, they will they will attack the, the New Testament, and then you say, "Did you you know? Did you find it was very difficult to understand Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John?" Yeah. No. Well, I haven't read those yet. Yeah. Uh, oh. Yeah, I got stuck on the he, the what 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 is it when? That whole in Genesis, the genealogy of everything. That's where people normally lose their wheels. <laughs> <laughs> well, you are, man. 
Anyway, I think our time is more than up. It is, and thank you very much, and thank you everyone for joining us. Okay, everybody. Okay. Bye for now. Bye. Thank you for listening to Truth Talks from Truth is the Word Ministry. If you'd like to share your views, read up on related topics, or purchase one of Dr. Pepler's books, please visit his blog on truthistheword.com. And remember, truth talks.